Welcome to Searching for the Question live episode 21. Uh, to all of you who are tuning in on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, as well as uh, on the uh, pages that uh, are welcoming us from Pakistan, where Rehan Alakwala kindly asked us to, to share these videos on those pages as well. And there is 1.5 million of you. Uh, I welcome your questions and comments that we will be happy to answer uh, in real time. And uh, also, of course, uh, if you like uh, this show, please subscribe to our channel uh, on YouTube or elsewhere. And uh, uh, as well as uh, you are welcome to uh, support Searching for the Question live on Patreon. Uh, my team and I are having a lot of fun uh, producing this, as well as experimenting with the tools, software, and hardware of how to put something like this together. Uh, I used to go at uh, two, three, or more conferences per month uh, all over the world, and now it is more than a month. Actually, now it is about a month and a half that I am in complete lockdown in Bergamo, Italy. And of course, I am uh, making good use of the time in order to learn new skills, to develop new abilities, and to reach out to friends, such as the guest that we have today. And, and one of you uh, told me that I should actually um, read out uh, the, uh, the bio of the guests. So what I did is to mount a teleprompter on the camera. Um, in one of the future episodes, uh, I will show how it works when we talk about tools, hardware and software and best practices. But today what I will do is to uh, put the phone that I have in uh, my hand uh, in the holder in front of the mirror, in front of the camera, and the mirror will allow me to read out uh, what I'm showing to you. That is how teleprompter works. So, uh, David Debeer is... This is not working now. I'm sorry, let me restart. Because, for some reason, I put it wrong. Let's start again. There you go. David Dewert is focused on facing and defeating humanity's interlinked existential crisis. He is experienced in founding and leading organizations both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors. And now he is based in Nairobi and Kenya, where he is working with partners from all over the world. He studied psychology and history in Canada, and he founded the local working group, uh, which is working with an expanding group of collaborators around the world to develop local investment structures that enable householders to pool funds and invest effectively in their own communities. They do this to stop climate change and biodiversity collapse while earning a return on their investments. David uh, also collaborates with the uh, open Source Medical Supplies Initiative, which is very recent, has been born around the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and he coordinates the global 
translation and localization effort of this group. Welcome, David, on the show. Here and just now we can hear. Welcome, David. Uh, thank you, David. It's a real pleasure to be here and to see you again. So uh, the first thing that I'm very curious about, and I would like you to, uh, to tell me, uh, is about Africa. Uh, I have only been twice, but both times in South Africa, which is probably mm. the least African of all countries, except that I also went on a safari, which was amazing. But uh, uh, Africa is such a huge country. So have you traveled uh, in, in many other places of the world? Uh, and, and now you ended up in Kenya. Is this your first time in Africa? Tell me about your experience. Well, uh, unlike you, who, who've traveled uh, so frequently, so many times around the world, I've been a very local Canadian. So I've lived uh, most places, most, most uh, regions of Canada, but I've really not been abroad much. I mean, the United States doesn't count too much. So I've been in Africa uh, now for one year and three months. I'm based here in Kenya. I've been to Uganda and uh, South Africa, but uh, I really spent a fair bit of time getting out in Kenya. Most of my work is with communities and community leaders. Uh, so I haven't focused too much on lions and ostriches, but I, I did get out to see them as well. And uh, uh, your environment uh, is, uh, is urban or, or you are more in the countryside? You know, a, a, a lot of inexperienced uh, Europeans, uh, when they have uh, Africa in mind, they mm. imagine huts and, and, and dust roads, unpaved uh, and, and universal poverty. Uh, mm. But uh, I, I don't expect that is the case, right? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mix because uh, Nairobi, Kenya is the heart of uh, East Africa's uh, commerce. So it's, uh, it's kind of like the uh, Nairobi is like the New York of East Africa. Uh, there are big, tall buildings. Uh, there are lots of wealthy investors. There are technology hubs. Um, there's, I've been focused on the green innovation that's happening here, and there's some exciting green innovation. So it's a city of seven and a half million when you take the outskirts into account or around three and a half million just in the city itself. Uh, it does present a contrast uh, between, uh, you know, some uh, very affluent neighborhoods uh, and uh, some very poor neighborhoods. Uh, so Kenya is, is uh, pardon me, Nairobi is the fastest growing city in the world outside of Asia. Is it uh, green like uh, these uh, photos uh, show it to be uh, with many parks? It, yeah, I wouldn't say it's quite so green as that. Uh, you have to find your way around to, to find that green oasis. But there are some wonderful green areas. Uh, you may have heard of Nobel Prize laureate Wangari Mathai, who's Kenyan, and she uh, 20 some, 30 some years ago, uh, convinced the city to save a large, what's become a national park to the south of the city, where you can go and see the lions and, and so on in the, in, the wild, in the wild. 
and uh, an area that's right next to the United Nations here, which, of course, Kenya does host um, several of the world headquarters of the big UN agencies. Uh, and, and, and right and this, adjacent uh, to that. photo shows the the, 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 the the wonderful contrast of a park yes. uh, that is so close uh, to the city. And evidently, yeah. you can see zebras and uh, sure. rhinos and uh, everything It's incredible. Else while yeah. seeing the, the skyscrapers of the city as well. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's just amazing, yeah. And and, and are you there uh, uh, on your own or, or you are with uh, uh, other significant uh, parts of, of your life? Yeah, I'm here with my lovely wife, Lisa. She's an employee at the United Nations. Uh, she works as an editor and translator there. And she just loves it. Uh, she, fabulous uh, skilled people that she gets to work with and of course working on documents that uh, have global importance on the environment on uh, human development uh, habitat and so on so um tell me about uh, your experience uh, as uh, you were uh, becoming what you are today and and your interests uh, as as they are today um back uh, in in canada with mm -hmm. um, a different uh, fauna and, and, and flora and different yeah. climate, uh, but also attitudes that uh, unite mm -hmm. us, uh, challenges that uh, are often the same in the local communities as they need to grow. Um, so how did you become interested in, in coordinating and organizing uh, uh, action for, for improving uh, the lives of people? Well, it's a long story, and I won't tell you the whole thing, but uh, originally I'm from a remote part of Canada. Uh, it's a little mysterious to most Canadians even. It's Canada's far north, the Northwest Territories. It's the, the hat on the top of North America. And I come from the, the big capital city of Yellowknife, which has probably about 25,000 people there today. And when I was uh, young, it was only 3,000 people. And it really is the home of the Dene people. And they've been very welcoming to the newcomers over the last 50, 60 years uh, who settled in the town. Uh, but I, I, I guess your question is about how did I come to being passionate about community and uh, local communities in particular and their potential uh, to, to resolve some of the big problems of our time. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, and uh, uh, of course, I, I believe, uh, and, and, and you may you may confirm uh, if if that is the case, your upbringing uh, that uh, uh, as uh, I'm showing uh, to our viewers who may have no idea, similarly to to where Nairobi, Kenya is, uh, I'm uh -huh. now showing them uh, Yellowknife. Uh, uh, in the Northern Territories, uh, right? So uh, yeah, yeah. You know that you that that photo that you showed remind me of a of a significant moment in my life. I had uh, been taken by my parents from Yellowknife, uh, there in in Canada's north, down to Vancouver, which is a big metropolitan city and on the west coast of of uh, British Columbia, in Canada, and spent my teenage years there. Uh, got civilized, but then I went back to Yellowknife. And as I was flying back, the man in the, the seat next to me 
and I started to chat. And after about 15, 20 minutes, he said, oh, you're not Mark Dewart's son, are you? And I said, yes, in fact, I am. This man turned out to be George Erasmus, who is a legendary figure among First Nations leaders in Canada, the Indigenous leaders. So as uh, we had a long chat, he told me about how he'd worked with my father in, in decades past and how he'd been an influence. Um, and as we were coming into Yellowknife, he said, welcome home. And I was so touched by that because his people have been there for 10,000 years. And we European immigrants have really you, only you, been there you mean columbus didn't discover america as a barren <laughs> land no 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 yeah no if i walked into your house and i i would be like columbus i would say oh i've discovered it it's mine <laughs> so yeah i i i became interested in community and i don't really know why but i just responded to issues so initially, the issue was a fear of, of uh, child, identific uh, child um, abduction by strangers. That was a, a bit of a panic wave in Canada in the mid-80s. And I was assigned by my Rotary Club to take on a project that involved taking dental records and fingerprints from children, which really would only be very useful in, if you found their dead bodies. So we thought about the problem and we did the research and we found out that really child abduction was a problem of strange parents taking their own children and telling, telling those children that uh, their other parent didn't love them and so on. And we did some public education and that just got me involved in community work. And I've done quite a few things over the years. During the Gulf War, I got together, the first Gulf War, I got together the leaders um, of different religious and uh, ethnic communities together with civic leadership. And we met regularly and there was dialogue across, across the community from, from the different segments of it in dealing with what was actually a very troubling time. People who were from the Middle East were the subject of some pretty unpleasant things uh, from extreme elements in our community. And we gave them the confidence that that the rest of the community cared and that the leaders of the community stood behind them. So, you know, there were those kinds of things. Um, I was a local economic development manager for a while, so interested in helping local economies to grow and local businesses to grow. Um, I guess that's some of the background that uh, I was involved in a software startup, as you know, uh, which was very focused on providing a good uh, experience that related more to the way humans really are and the way that we connect with one another around our interests in places in time and, uh, and so I've been working on the whole subject of how do we work together in communities for quite a while uh, we have our viewers uh, uh, saying hello in various ways uh... Emiliano likes uh, uh, both uh, the intro music uh, as well as the bookshelf. Now, I don't know whether he's referring to your bookshelf or my bookshelf. because It's got to be your books, bookshelf uh, and your beard, David. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have um, 
uh, Abdullah Khan uh, saying, saying uh, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, the same to you, Abdul. Thank you very much. Uh, and we have uh, Afshin, of course, also uh, probably tagging a, a friend of uh, his uh, to alert him that this is an interesting video. So thank you for those remarks, everybody. And we are also looking forward to your questions, if you mm -hmm. have any, about Canada, about uh, Nairobi, uh, and uh, the things that we will be shortly mentioning here uh, with, uh, with David. So um, as you arrived uh, um, about a year ago in Nairobi, is that correct? Yes, when, that's when right. It, you, you, you decided that, uh, yes, for a few weeks, uh, it would be fine to do little or nothing. But then <laughs> uh, instead of uh, keeping doing that, you looked around and asked yourself uh, how you could be useful uh, locally. Uh, am I correct that that could have been a little bit, and I'm totally ad-libbing. Uh, well, sure. Uh, yeah, but, no, no, you're, uh, you're not too far been a, a, a bit of the way that uh, uh, the local uh, climate bank uh, has, has been born? Well, actually, it was born uh, in conversations I had in the week prior to my departure in Canada. And so I brought it with me. But you're right, when I first arrived, uh, there was a, a bit of not doing too much because everything was so new. And I had no idea how new it was. Uh, so it was a lot of orientation and jet lag. But, uh, but before I left Canada, I had been wrestling with uh, the challenge of addressing climate change in particular in my home province of Ontario, Canada, where I was living. I've lived there for more than 20 years now. And we had elected a government uh, which for four of the 10 years at that time that we have to solve this problem, that government has been heading in as fast as possible in the wrong direction. You know, they're opening up green spaces to be built on. They're allowing endangered species uh, killing them is not an issue. Uh, you know, they, they actually taking down windmills and pulling out uh, electric charging stations for electric vehicles. And just wow. in the last week. And, 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 and how did they uh, justify all of that? Business. They're open for business. Well, um, we should tell them <laughs> that electric cars are good business, actually. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe no, not, there's... Maybe not their friends' business. That was the problem. Mm, mm. Well, there's probably a bit of that. But, uh, you know, I was wrestling with that, and this government uh, got elected with promises of cheaper beer, uh, among other things. It, it, it wasn't... Uh, uh, it certainly wasn't... It didn't get my vote, but, you know, as a person very concerned about climate and who's been educating himself on that, I thought to myself... This is not the only government like this in the world. You know, the Trump administration of the States is, is quite similar. And in fact, our premier in Ontario admires the President Trump greatly. And if we're going to solve these very big, complex, existential, as you said in the intro, issues, how are we going to do it without the support of governments? Most people look, and I, you know, this was what hit me before I left, we look at governments, and particularly the wealthy individuals, and we say that it's going to be them who must solve this problem. After all, who are we? But what dawned on me before I left is that 
if you add up all the grains of sand and in, in you know that that i have in terms of my personal net worth and all the other middle class and even the poor around the world do you have an idea of how much wealth that is david orban uh, well uh, i have my own ideas uh, there, there are periodically uh, statistics that say that uh, a handful of people own whatever percentage of the wealth of the world but i don't much care about them they do whatever mm. they do colonize mars and, and and hopefully do good things but mm -hmm. what what i believe you may be leading to with you with your question is that indeed the the ability of a large number of people even though they are not the richest to do good as they pool their uh, ability together is tremendous that it's is tremendous mm -hmm. it's tremendous the cost according to axios research of um of defeating climate change properly invested of course is about 45 trillion us dollars which is an enormous amount of money but if you add up uh the little bit that i have the little bit that the security guards that work at the neighbor house have and you know the seven and a half million people in nairobi who are not among the one percent of the richest here you add that number up around the world it's 140 trillion according to some estimates that's three times more than we need to stop climate change. That's what dawned on me before I left. And so I thought to myself, can I now engage with community leaders? And I have done that in Kenya, but in other parts of the world as well, even back in my hometown, to see if we can motivate people to work together, invest together in things that you know, as you were saying earlier, a lot of green investments are good investments. Can we work together to, uh, to, to get those investments happening at a local level and uh, return a good uh, return an investment to people and generate the impact on climate and ecology that we need? Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, clearest examples of uh, how good uh, uh, the environment and investment is uh, is uh, uh, Costa Rica. That uh, mm. uh, let's uh, let's see where it is. Uh, let me actually uh, look at it here. Sorry, I'm fumbling yeah. a bit, but I am now about to show it. There you go. So what is amazing if you if you look at uh, Haiti. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the island and and the nation which is far from uh where you are it's a nation in the caribbean uh, and sorry i didn't want to say uh, costa rica i wanted to say the dominican republic uh, okay uh, uh, they they occupy the same island haiti <coughs> and the dominican republic and as you zoom in uh, how do i do that here zoom in on the border between the two countries, you can see that one of them preserves the environment and the other less so. You see mm. how the slopes on the Haitian side are, are ye more yellow and mm -hmm. the slopes on the, on the um, Dominican side are, are greener? Mm -hmm. That is a direct effect of deforestation on one side 
and of uh, preserving the environment on the other. Wow, that's and, pretty dramatic. Uh, and uh, and um, uh, both could be doing better, but uh, uh, the Dominican Republic owes a lot of its DG GDP uh, to tourism and tourists go there because of how beautiful the environment is and how mm -hmm. rich in local fauna and 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 so on so this is this is a dramatic example and uh, while you speak i will uh, also look up uh, uh, the the proportion of uh, gdp per head in in one country and the other right and to see if we can find data that attributes um gdp growth to environmental protection as a strong uh, correlation. Sure, societies are complex things. Uh, you know, history has a, a powerful effect on, on what we experience in the moment. But just with what you said about uh, the Dominican Republic and uh, tourism and how that's connected to healthy forests and so on, um, I'm reminded of a story here in Kenya. You know, in, in much of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the primary source of energy is, is wood. People cook with wood. And as the population grows, uh, so the forests come down. And so that's, that's a challenge, and there's a lot of innovation going on here in Nairobi in order to address that challenge. But um, you can find business models that make communities uh, want to sustain forests. Uh, there's a wonderful example from the coast here in Kenya of a community that had a forest that was slowly being denuded of its trees <coughs> for firewood. But um, they found a business model that made it a much better idea to keep that forest. And what they have are rare butterflies there. So those butterflies, uh, larvae, are worth a lot, some like 5,000 US dollars, which is a a big amount of money here. And so the community now has people guarding the forest. You can't go there and remove a branch without a permission because in that forest, these butterflies, these rare butterflies grow. So it's, well, beautiful, to see beautiful. What up. So, so in the meantime, uh, thank you for that story. Uh, I went ahead and went to Wolfram Alpha. Uh, which okay. is a wonderful resource of quantitative yeah. data and, and computational search. I love where it. You can uh, look up uh, stuff uh, of all kinds. And yeah. I literally typed in GDP per head Haiti mm -hmm. uh, and GD, uh, divided by GDP per head Dominican Republic. And, uh, and the system interpreted it correctly, mm -hmm. uh, grouping my words uh, as they should be. And we see that uh, over the course uh, of uh, the past uh, uh, century, really, uh, but uh, especially in the past uh, 20 years, um, the, uh, the growth in, uh, uh, in the Dominican Republic was, was kind of constant versus uh, Haiti. And now it is almost 10 times Wow. Uh, the the uh, the GDP per capita of one uh, of of the Dominican Republic versus uh, versus Haiti, hmm. um, and and then uh, we could uh, we could look up uh, with a little more effort of how much of this 
can be uh, attributed to, to better environmental uh, policies. So um, the, the, the concept uh, of uh, local climate banks is, I think, very powerful. What kind of uh, uh, reception did you have uh, as, you, as you tried and popularized it uh, locally? Uh, was it easy to, to, to make people understand what you wanted to do hard? Uh, and, 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 and what are your, your plans with it uh, going forward? So depending on the audience that I'm speaking to, the reception can be, uh, can di be different and be understood differently. So um, one of the first audiences I had was uh, people who attended the UN Environmental Assembly in March of 2019. I went as a representative of local climate banks and uh, I spoke to more than 100 people. And only one of them gave me negative feedback. He thought that it was too capitalist because it still involved profit. And my response was, well, if you want to have investment of a significant part of the life savings of, of a middle-class person, let alone a poor person, you just aren't going to get it unless there's a return on investment. And unless we get those investments, we're missing a major piece of how we stop uh, climate change and ecological collapse. So, but the others were very warm to enthusiastic. One man that I haven't been able to see since is uh, Dr. Paolo Soprano, who is head of the IPBES, uh, latest report on the state of the global environment. We took a picture together and he said, I pray, I really hope that you can succeed with this because nobody's thought about it. Uh, we're focused on national governments and uh, big corporations and so on. But if we can bring the real people into action on this in this kind of way, it could make a dramatic difference. Now, when I go out in the country, um, when I talk to people around the world that are not, uh, you know, the diplomats and the uh, country representatives and so on, uh, I get a different response. So when I talk to rural people in Kenya, uh, they can be initially quite puzzled because what's, you know, I, I, I'm talking about the common people here because community leaders are a different story, but your average person, just like your average Canadian, doesn't think terribly much about all of these things. Uh, and the model, particularly here in Sub-Saharan Africa, social finance is, is the number one thing, right? So outside investors come in and invest in order to achieve, achieve social good. And communities try to orient themselves towards what those funders want to see and try and attract that outside funding. So local climate banks are asking us to do something quite different. It's to pull together our own small amounts of, of funds and to invest them into our own community in a way that generates a positive economic result and a positive impact for the community and climate and ecological health. And it seems counterintuitive to folks at first. But I say I pull out a, a, a you know, a thousand shillings out of my pocket and I put it on the table. I put my black phone on the table and I say, now this community is, is, is like this black phone to most people. It's a black box. They don't know what it is. But if you put your hand out and say, look, we'd like to get an investment here to make our lives better. Uh, you sound like one of, of 
millions that are asking for support and people are a little afraid of that because they don't have enough to give or they don't feel they do. <clears throat> if on the other hand, you don't do that, and for one year you work together with your others in your community, and now you've produced a profit, and I put the thousand shilling note on top of my phone. Now when you speak to the outside world and say, would you like to invest with us? We're making a good return. It's quite a different story. So that's how local climate banks have appealed to regular folks. When I talk to community leaders, and one of one of them that I, I, I'm just so grateful to have as a friend, this 77-year-old uh, Maasai elder, he grew up in the time where you had to kill a lion in order to become a man. Wow. And he's a very, very well-respected man. Um, you know, I would say there's at least 100 or 200,000 people who would take anything he suggested very seriously. And, and, and for those of our viewers who, who, who are not right. aware, the Maasai are, are these incredible uh, people and, and, and tribe uh, with, with beautiful rituals uh, in particular. Uh, and I only know it from documentaries, of course. Uh, uh, Maasai uh, men compete in, in who can uh, jump the, the, the highest uh, in, in these uh, incredible dances. Uh, and I just wanted to show it uh, so that uh, our, our viewers know what uh, you are talking about. Well, the Maasai culture is a very old culture. It's, it's like 200,000 years old. I'm in no way an expert on Maasai culture. I, I, I go, I listen, and I try to learn. But, uh, you know, a culture that has survived that long must have some wisdom. Mm -hmm. How, you know, how else? I mean, we are questioning our own wisdom. We are so advanced, you know, we've made so much progress as we've now practically choked the world of its life. Uh, they have wisely continued in traditional ways of living for hundreds of thousands of years. And so when I'm speaking to this representative of that tradition, I have, a, I think, an appropriate sense of, of respect. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, so, uh, so, so he's Mikhail, very concerned. Mi Mi Mikhail Rizos is asking, isn't it hard to do business in Africa given the lack of property rights protection? Well, a lot of people seem to be able to do it quite well. And for, for uh, many reasons, they're attracted to the heart of commercial East Africa. But uh, I have heard about the issue with property rights. And it is a complicating factor because often land, um, who actually owns that land is not necessarily easily determined. Um, mm -hmm. Multiple people can have the same rights to the same land. Well, if you but have uh, 200,000 years uh, without uh, a written track record, then yes, it is a, it, it is a long, long narrative and knowledge that defines uh, uh, not only traditions, but also very concrete things uh, uh, where, where I can uh, bring my cattle, uh, whose land uh, my herd can occupy or, or not. Uh, Flavio from Argentina uh, says hello there. And uh, he makes uh, a, a long remark about uh, the uh, limits of our adaptability as uh, climate change uh, uh, it, it ha happens. And uh, he is asking if, uh, if we are doomed. So uh, people who think about uh, existential risk, uh, whether it is uh, an asteroid, 
uh, or whether it is uh, a, a, a pathogen, uh, whether it is nuclear war or climate change, mm -hmm. uh, classify this risk uh, in the probability of extinction per uh, 100 years. So mm -hmm. how likely is that uh, a certain risk will uh, lead to the total extinction of the human species in a given period of time? And uh, current uh, studies uh, have been able to reduce what was deemed some time ago uh, the biggest fear with regards to climate change, that there could be a, a runaway warming to bring Earth to conditions that are close to what uh, we see in Venus, for example, where mm -hmm. lead will melt and uh, uh, there are three, four hundred degrees uh, uh, of, of temperature on, on the planet. And it looks like that is not going to happen. Another fear was that uh, there could be um, uh, vast deposits of uh, toxic ga gases in the permafrost uh, or under the Antarctic. And as uh, melting would free those gases, uh, we would be, uh, we would die because the air literally wouldn't be breathable uh, anymore. So we don't know uh, exactly uh, what um, is going to happen, of course, but um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the risk is definitely for billions of people to have their um, ability to, to flourish radically reduced uh, for many to, to suffer and to a lot potentially also to die. Uh, uh, but uh, climate change still is not going to represent an existential risk as far as, as we understand it. Doesn't mean that we should relax or, or relent. Emiliano uh, is adding uh, very appropriately that uh, one of the existential risks uh, could uh, also be represented by artificial intelligence. We uh, spoke about AI in some of the past episodes, and we will certainly also go back uh, to, uh, to AI. Uh, and, uh, and, and another remark that uh, Emiliano makes bridges the two things that we will talk about today, uh, David, because uh, uh, I have direct uh, anecdotal um, uh, uh, a documentation of the fact that the past month of Italian lockdown is bringing nature already back, like mm -hmm. roaring. Uh, literally, behind my house, there are uh, paths leading to the Alps, to the mountains, and deer and uh, wild boars and other serious wildlife is coming closer and closer to the yeah. to the to the villages and and to the city so so it is amazing that uh, that uh, as little um, as this has been and and obviously as hard as it has been on on people who have been in lockdown and and on the businesses uh, it has been um, really uh, good for 
uh, for the the environment. Uh, is is there a lockdown in in Nairobi now? Um, how is yes, the, there is. How is the pan yeah. pandemic? Uh, and and are are people getting tested? And and uh, how is the health uh, sector coping with uh, with the developments? Well, maybe we'll get to some of those earlier points that I found very interesting to respond to Flavio's and Emilio's comments. Oh, please, absolutely, but, go go back to go back to them. Don't worry. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so, I, so to please. me, you could use the example of the coronavirus and look at Bergamo. Has it been bad, David? Question for you. Horrible. <laughs> It's been horrible. horrible. Okay, so horrible. when somebody says, "Is this an existential crisis?" If we take that in a little way and mean, will the last human expire as a result of this? I, I think that it's the wrong way of looking at it because with a third of the population or a half of the population surviving after the tumult of what will happen if we don't stop climate change, passing that two centigrade warming, um, It's much worse than what we're seeing with this. You know, it, by the middle of the 2030s, if we don't move from the trajectory now towards four degrees of warming uh, and, and get this under control, most of the regions of the Middle East will be uninhabitable because they're too hot. And, and good parts of the United States will likewise be too hot to live in. People can't live in average temperatures over 50 degrees. So, and uh, and yeah. uh, I am relatively less worried about the United States, where Texas wasn't very inhabitable before air conditioning either, and and so uh, that's that's why now Texas uh, is is uh, you know there's Houston and and other cities and Dallas and whatever else because we have air conditioning, but uh, the same is happening uh, in uh, in large parts of India. Where, as mm -hmm. you say, uh, we yeah. have both very high temperatures. The Middle East humidity is low and people can exist. But biologically, when both temperature and humidity are high, our bodies are unable to shed uh, uh, the excess temperature through uh, sweating. And, and we simply die of a heat stroke. So, yeah. so yes, here, yes. Yeah. And here in Kenya, you know, that uh, elder I was talking to you about, uh, Kalena Ole Cho is his name, uh, has received, and you know, you have, they're very, very good scientists living in their area, received the advice that within two to eight years, and nobody gives it more than eight years, their, their whole people, about a million of them in Kenya and uh, northern part of Tanzania, will become internally displaced because they won't be able to live on that land anymore because of climate change. So, you know, it, it's, it, it may not be the end of humanity, but we don't want the suffering that will, that will be entailed. And you've brought and, up the and, coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, 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 sorry, before we, we go there, and, and we, we have to talk about uh, the open source medical uh, supplies yes. uh, initiative. Uh, It is, it is so beautiful, and you can do nothing about it, probably. We can hear the crickets chirping in the background as yeah. the sunset uh, is, is arriving. 
because you are yeah. close to the equator and the yeah. sunsets are are fast and constant mm -hmm. in in the northern hemisphere and the and the southern hemisphere we have summers and winters that have longer or shorter days but of course where you are right now the days have the same duration uh, all year long so so that that's that's wonderful let's let's talk about uh, the the pandemic and let's talk about this wonderful initiative that you became part of and where you are addressing the necessity and the opportunity of global coordination uh, for the translation of uh, uh, the, the, the material that so, is needed for, for medical supplies. On March 11th of this year, uh, actually March 10th, a robotics engineer and CEO in uh, San Francisco, Guy Cavalcanti, uh, put uh, a Facebook post on his page and he said, uh, my supply chain is, is stopped. Um, and so I see that uh, medical workers are out of material, out of supplies. Uh, would anyone else like to help me get them the supplies they need? And he had quite a few people say yes. So the next day he formed a group, open source COVID-19 medical supplies, he called it. And uh, your son, actually, David, was one of those who had uh, liked that page. Uh, he's a 3D maker, uh, 3D um, a printer and so on. And uh, so I then found out about it and I joined it 2,000 people. Now it's over 70,000 people. And that's just in the main group. Hundreds of thousands of people in the last three weeks have gotten very, very busy um, making medical supplies. And the way it's organized is it's organized on a local basis. And it's usually people like your son that are, that are promoting it in the lead. Because and, uh, they have and, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Geo is also part of the initiative, uh, or at yes, least you are trying to, to pull him in. Geo oh, he's from in. Uh, Romania. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and so what uh, is possible? What can be done? Uh, with the tools that makers uh, uh, and, and people who have the technical expertise to operate a 3D printer, what can, what can those people do? What are the, the, the things that can be achieved? Well, the scope of, uh, the scope of, you just open the, yeah, not the local response by, but the medical supply guide on your left. Local response by is how do we get organized? Here, this is how, what can we make? You'll see in the table of contents a list of the kinds of things. So under PPE, we can make masks, all kinds of masks, right? Um, N95 respirators. Obviously, that's not something that you can make at home. But here is a guide for companies that can manufacture them. Surgical face masks, goggles, masks, uh, you know, all of these things, gowns. Uh, in my home community of Guelph, Ontario, uh, the hospital said, we need 10,000 gowns now. So how do you make those effectively? And uh, there's a company that set up again in my hometown of, uh, right next door to my hometown of Guelph in Kitchener, Waterloo. Uh, and they're making face shields. Uh, I know people in Egypt that started four days ago, and they've got an order of 10,000 face shields on the way to the local hospital. Doctors and, and nurses is, are walking out of hospitals because they don't have the supplies. 
and and there's a demonstration of uh, uh, of the enthusiasm around the initiative as we speak there are 78 people who are consulting this document probably from all over the world just connecting as we are uh, to see uh, what is possible so the energy is why, incredible david why why is it important to to translate it isn't everybody speaking just english and 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 who cares about their <laughs> local language well it depends on what country that you're in of course and it depends which audience within that country that we're addressing so in india for example it's a country with a national language of english but uh, india even the english itself has to be localized for india india has different regulations the regulations of course are important um and within India, if we're going to be sharing recipes for how to sew masks, and it's important that people get the correct and accurate information, that it be shared in that case in Bengali, in Hindi, and in, in any one of the... In Marathi, you know, I don't know. in Kannada, in Telugu, in Tamil, in Malayalam, and uh, the yeah. other... Uh, 20 plus languages in uh, um, in in uh, India that have uh, more than 10 million uh, speakers. Uh, Who can't sew, uh, right? You know, yeah. I, I, I mean, in every community there are people who can sew. So we want to get them good patterns. Now, of course, these are American recipes and they're designed for the American community where certain fabrics, certain technologies, certain skills are available. Now, when we move to India, it's, of course, a technology, uh, an advanced uh, country in terms of the great technology. You know, the CEO of Google is, a, is, a, is an Indian. Uh, but not everywhere is the same knowledge distributed. So, so it may be an official language, but, you know, English isn't the right language to hand out sewing instructions everywhere in India. Absolutely. Uh, same thing and, in and of Egypt course, the, and the, 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 so the cost uh, is also uh, an advantage because locally produced, efficiently produced uh, devices can be uh, inexpensive. Geo is saying they made a 250 euro ventilator in Timisoara. In 10 days, they could produce 4,000 of them uh, only uh, in Cluj uh, or Cluj. Wow. I don't know. And, yeah, he's uh, jumped right on the ventilators, which is which is a very serious issue in most countries. And, uh, and uh, Emiliano is asking if you heard about a story of this uh, sports equipment uh, chain called Decathlon that donated 500 divers masks uh, that have been uh, uh, transformed. Uh, it has been uh, quite uh, much in the, in the news. Uh, I haven't heard about that because I've been oh, let so me show you because. Yeah. It's, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Um, it, the um, the masks uh, actually. Uh, I I I also have uh, uh, this this mask uh, that uh, is uh, uh, available as you see on the on the right uh, yeah. to to dive right. Yeah, so, sorry mm. to snorkel. It's it's very nice because it has this huge uh, faceplate and you see the fishes. In the beautiful yeah, yeah. beaches in Italy, modern and convenient, and and uh, it doesn't fog, um, and so these uh, guys uh, in uh, in Brescia, uh, west of Milan, in the north of Italy, took the mask and applied uh, uh, all kinds of uh, 
3D printed pods to um, connect them to the ventilators, mm. right? And uh, rather than getting upset and uh, threatened to, to, to sue them or, or whatever for, you know, unauthorized uh, alterations in the product or whatever else, uh, the, the chain that distributes the masks said, wow, this is amazing, and donated 500 masks so that they could be uh, altered and they were all over the news. The, the energy is great. I attended a, a leadership meeting with the uh, open source medical supplies people just two hours ago. And um, uh, well, Kaveri from India says that there are these masks in India as well. So the sure. kind of design and alteration could be could be leveraged. Uh, in, no, tremendous resources. Yeah. Uh, uh, masks, uh, they become uh, everyone's really eager effective. to help. Everyone's yeah. eager to help, David. And uh, and so what we're seeing here, and this is how it ties for me to local climate banks, is, is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Local communities looking after in themselves, and in this case, focused very much on medical workers, doctors and nurses, because without them, we don't have the help we need to survive this. And, uh, and people are just, you know, whether they can sew, fabricate, even big manufacturers, you know, this little group that, uh, that I joined that your son that was already in now has an association of 9,000 American manufacturers who are taking the recipes that they have put together and making them. The FDA and the CDC have likewise come alongside and are helping. So this is the kind of local response we need to solve big problems and knowledge sharing, right? We've got the best ideas from here. We're taking them there. Let's take them the other way as well. And 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 this is the uh, uh, the the page uh, and the and the group uh, on on Facebook. Uh, right. One thousand uh, members uh, uh, today. Maybe tomorrow a hundred thousand. So uh, a lot of people like to hate Facebook or pretend that they hate it, but yeah. we have to recognize that uh, today it is a great platform for global action and coordination. We have to pay sure attention is. to be able yeah. to uh, uh, export our data and we should do so frequently. And you can export your personal data as well as your pages. And people right. have been asking for 10 years for Facebook to allow the export of groups data and and uh, they they don't allow that yet so that is an improvement they should implement because all the knowledge and all the relationships and all the comments that are in a group uh, with 70,000 passionate and creative and enthusiastic people is a is a real uh, richness that must not uh, ever uh, disappear so yeah uh, as as we go towards uh, uh, the um, conclusion of our hour together, uh, David. Um, what is the message that you would like uh, our viewers to 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 leave with? Uh, what can they concretely do, both for local climate banks as well as for the uh, open uh, uh, source uh, medical supplies uh, initiative? Um, if if they feel um, the enthusiasm that you have shown, what uh, what can they? Uh, uh, what can they um, do to... Uh, uh, well, first you know. of all, I'd like to invite all of those people, uh, even those who are interested in local climate banks, to get involved right now in helping to address the medical supplies issue. 
you know, if we work together now on this crisis, which has gripped every country in every part of the world, and sadly, we're still heading for worse days, um, we're building a network of people who are willing to take this leadership, uh, take this action in their own communities for the benefit of others. And we're building a network in which we're sharing knowledge, patterns that can be taken from this part of the world and used in that part of the world and vice versa. If we can do this, um, this is the biggest challenge humanity's faced with this level of urgency in a hundred years. Uh, we now are building a network that we can use to address those even bigger existential crises. So I encourage everyone to get involved with open source medical supplies. And in your country, in your community, we're working into 60 languages right now and adding more uh, and localizing for every country that needs it and wants it. And so I, that's what I would say. Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh, David, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it has been wonderful to, to, to see you. And uh, uh, I uh, hope that uh, uh, your efforts, as well as the efforts of uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people yes. all over the world, will rapidly help with the, with the pandemic, uh, both uh, in scientific research, but also mm -hmm. in the application of, of ingenuity to alleviate the conditions of those who are sick and, uh, and are suffering. Uh, thank you for being uh, on the show with us. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. I hope I see you in person again soon. Thank you. Uh, so uh, thank you, everybody, for having been uh, here uh, on Searching uh, for the Question live. Uh, I uh, welcome you to join our community on Discord uh, that we have started to um, discuss uh, the topics that uh, we are uh, uh, touching uh, upon every day, topics of technology, uh, topics of uh, social change, uh, topics of culture. Uh, we had uh, guests uh, from the United States, from Pakistan, from Africa, from uh, so many different uh, places. And uh, I do want to uh, invite you to uh, uh, watch uh, some of the past episodes and uh, if you like them subscribe uh, on our uh, YouTube channel uh, where you will be alerted or of course keep following it uh, on uh, uh, Facebook uh, which is also um, available in various pages both uh, uh, on uh, the page searching for the question uh, which is my official page but also on the pages of Rehan Alakwala who kindly invited us to share this show uh, with uh, his followers. And uh, of course, uh, if you uh, like uh, the show, I uh, invite you to become a supporter on Patreon, uh, where uh, you will receive uh, all kinds of uh, uh, benefits, uh, but most importantly, uh, the knowledge that you are enabling uh, these kinds of conversations uh, that I believe are an important part of uh, our uh, global uh, communication today and uh, enables us to uh, connect. And I am looking forward uh, to do that uh, tomorrow as well. Thank you. <laughs>